Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for Thursday, April 28th. I'm Hannah Rosen, the Double X editor at Slate. I am joined here in the Washington, D.C. office by David Plotz, Slate's editor and also the husband of Hannah Rosen. Hi, David. Hi, sweetie. And in New York, we have Dan Engber, who's Slate's senior editor and also an ABD in neuroscience, which makes him the only one who knows what he's talking about on this podcast. We are going to discuss Moonwalking with Einstein, which is the bestseller by Joshua Four about his attempts to become a U.S. memory champion and what he learned along the way about memory and brains and why memory is important. Uh, before we get going, I just want to mention what our book club is going to be for next month. For once, we are not discussing a new book. Yay. To celebrate the sesquicentennial. Is that how you say it? Sesquicentennial? It anyway, all the Civil War mania. We are going to discuss Michael Shara's 1974 book, Killer Angels, which everyone who's read said is amazing. It's a fictional retelling of the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm sure you can borrow a copy from your father, uncle, whoever is the Civil War buff in your life, which in my case is my husband, David Plotz, who raves and raves about this book. So join us in about a month for Killer Angels. Now let's get back to Moonwalking with Einstein, which is a truly uh, charming book. David, do you want to say how this book got started? Like, why did Josh go down this path? This whole podcast needs a sort of like credit card statement, footnotes and small print, because Josh Four is a former Slate intern. He worked here maybe eight or 10 years ago as a very young I think maybe even in high school, his brother, Frank Four, is also a former Slate colleague of ours and, and one of my best friends. Josh writes very regularly for Slate. And he paid us to do this podcast. And he paid us to do this podcast. And this book, Moonwalking with Einstein, actually originated as a Slate piece when Josh went to cover a U.S. memory championship for a small Slate article he did, gosh, maybe four or five years ago. And the experience of covering that memory championship led him to becoming obsessed with this question of memory and how to improve your memory and his own uh, 
very ambitious effort to become a memory champion himself. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. What on earth is a U.S. memory championship? We talk as if that's a thing that everybody knows. It's even more obscure than, say, the spelling bee, which some of us may have seen on ESPN. So what is a U.S. memory championship? Well, the U.S. memory championship is obscure. And I think one of the problems of this book, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about that. it. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk about it. It's a wonderful book. But the book has a problem is that it makes the U.S. memory championship, which is truly a competition engaged in by a few dozen people in the sort of dinky way, you know, for with no grand audience or not. There's not a huge number of people who participate in memory championships. Memory championships have no profile in the United States. But the idea of it is to be the person who can memorize a, a shuffled deck of cards quickly, to be able to memorize hundreds of names and faces, to be able to memorize a poem, to be able to memorize facts about a person you're introduced to very quickly. It's testing people's ability to, in very short time, take in and process and retain huge amounts of random bits of information. And they do this by having cultivated their practical memory skills in the ways that Josh describes in this book. We're going to shelve the dinkiness question for a minute. And first, I want to talk about how you do this. So so the charm of this book, even though this is like a dinky championship, is watching Josh himself. And now that we've laid our cards out, we can call him Josh, train himself to do this. And the coolest part is the memory palace. But I'm going to let Dan describe a little bit what is involved in training yourself to improve your memory. Because the central question that he sets out to answer is, are these some kind of like special freaks with special talents? Or could any of us train ourselves to be memory championships. So Dan, what do you do? If you're Josh, what did he do? All of these mental athletes is what they call themselves. They all do the same thing pretty much. And that's to memorize lists of numbers or long poems. They just visualize everything. They take every part of the list and they create a vivid mental image. And then they place it in another image of a, a house or a, a street or something and then when it's time to recall the list of numbers or names, they just are sort of walking through their mental imagery, seeing um, some object on the side of the road. And that reminds them, oh, that was, you know, the first three digits, seven, nine, four. And then they see the next one. And that calls to mind the next set of digits. So it's just this very simple idea, which it seems like if anyone does that, learns to do that, they've suddenly become much better at memorizing than anyone else. Now, I have to say, I was delighted by the idea of the visual memory of the idea. Like you think that memorizing numbers is the most tedious, boring thing imaginable. So when I picked up this book, I thought I was going to be subjected to some unbelievably boring method by which you, you know, couple numbers together or God knows what. But in fact, it's not just any images that you're supposed to create in your head. It's incredibly vivid and strange images, thus the title Moonwalking with Einstein, which becomes important. You have to create incongruous, memorable images, usually concocted from couplings of famous people doing weird things in tubs of cottage cheese. So, David, you're cracking open the book because what? Because you're going to read us some portion of this or yes. tell us some of yeah, the Yeah, well, just to, he opens with, you know, Dom DeLuise, celebrity fat man and the five of clubs, the five of clubs and, and Josh's on memory. So palace. each card is is yeah. like assigned like a person, right. you know, has hocked a fat globule of spittle, which is the nine of clubs, the fat globule of spittle, the nine of clubs on Albert Einstein's thick white mane, which is a three of diamonds. And delivered a devastating karate kick, five of spades, to the groin of Pope Benedict XVI, the six of diamonds. And he goes on, Michael Jackson has defecated on a salmon burger and <laughs> captured his flatulence, the queen of clubs, in a balloon, six of spades. One of the pieces of advice that Josh gets over and over again is that his images should be 
you know, as striking as possible. And, and that means, you know, make them sexual, make them disgusting, make them violent, make them involve you know, people that are, he's very close to. There's a part where he, he's training and he discovers that, he, you know, he's assigned certain, uh, I think it's cards to people he loves, like his grandmother. And then he's, he's assigned other cards to, you know, unspeakable sexual acts. And so he's trying to <laughs> memorize a sequence. And he realizes that in his memory palace, he has to create a mental image of, you know, his grandmother doing whatever to Dom DeLuise. <laughs> and this is a real problem. And so he, he calls up his mentor and he's like, what am I going to do about this? I, I hate it. I don't want to memorize my grandmother and, and Dom DeLuise. And the guy says, oh, well, you know, this is a common problem. You really have to be careful. Well, you know, what's really funny is that like, you know, the way he describes this in evolutionary terms is we have good memories for like sex, like vile, disgusting things and real estate. Those are basically the three things that stick in our memories because the word memory palace, which I don't think we've sufficiently described, is not anything exotic. Like his first memory palace is his childhood home. It's basically any house that you know well. And so you place these characters in order throughout the house as you would walk through it. So, you know, his grandmother and Dom DeLuise doing God knows what might be on the front porch and the next person's in the coat rack and the next person's in the, you know, first floor bathroom. One of the big ideas that he keeps bringing up is that we have two kinds of memory. We have sort of an explicit memory and that's what we would think of if we were trying to memorize a phone number. I just, I need working these memory, in. right? That's what I was going right. to say. That seems to be the central principle. It's like your working memory is your Achilles heel. Your working memory sort of picks up things and drops them almost immediately. The way he puts it is you'll forget the first three words of the sentence before the sentence you're reading almost immediately. So we read and read and we forget and forget. That's one quote in the book. So we do all these things and then we drop them. And so you need to work pretty actively to. A, make your working memory stronger, and B, kind of, if you want to keep, hold on to memories, you've got to lodge them in places that are active, visual, repetitive. And we'll talk about some of the central, like the general universal principles of better memory in a moment. But yes, working memory is the important, more important, I think, than. And, and also the idea that things that you explicitly remember at some point, some of those things become more implicit memories. You don't even remember that you remember them. So you're walking through your house at home. You don't have to think, you know, where's the bathroom again? Oh, yeah, it's on the left. You know where it is. And so the idea of the memory palace is, you know, the palace being a stand-in for some location that you know very well that you implicitly remember. That if you put all of these new things you need to remember just in places around your imaginary apartment or house, well, then somehow you're tapping into that implicit memory to remember these new items. I was actually feeling bad for urbanites reading this book thinking, well, they all live in apartments. Like how how many spaces do you have in your little apartment that you can stick in Ray Perlman and your grandma? Exactly. Anyway, so let's talk more about the central tension of this book. So as you guys mentioned, there's a sort of freak show element. I mean, he describes the U.S. Memory Championship and some of the characters who reappear in this book. There's only about five or six who compete on this championship who he mentions. As he compares them to jugglers at some point. He said, or like a weird Al Yankovic concert. You know, it's clearly a little bit of a sort of dysfunctional freak show at some level. On the other hand, he's not writing this book to illuminate a dysfunctional freak show. He's writing this book in order to teach us some general principles about memory and why it's central and why it's important. You know, did you come away from this book thinking, well, if I sat down and tried to do this, I would be a better person? I mean, Josh goes back and forth on this question, or I would just be like, you know, the best freak among freaks. Like, is it like the world's tallest dwarf? Or is this something that's really, you know, could be used to perfect your brain? Josh's book is in a 
a genre, the, and I think if this genre was inaugurated and perhaps even done as well as could be by Stefan Fatsis in Word Freak, where he took the subculture of, of competitive Scrabble and he went into it, dove into it, and spent all this time with these weirdos and became a competitive Scrabble player. And Josh does something very similar here. It's another strange subculture. And again, Josh is a very, really delightful writer. And so this depiction of his own effort to become the memory champion is the less interesting part of the book. The interesting part of the book to me, and the part that's very important, is the practical ideas about memory and the value of memory and the utility of memory in life and what we get out of cultivating our memory, which is applicable to all of us and is almost independent of this the freak show subculture. Although I feel like that's an unresolved question because as he says many, many times, we live in a world of externalized memory. We live in a world in which anything you need to know, you can access just by Googling. And so why, even though there's, you know, sort of references to Socrates and, you know, how memory is the repository of our culture and how we are nothing without our memory, we have no sort of clear boundaries of self. We are just entirely a collection of our memories, as is our culture. It's like, you know, but he's also kind of not sure about that. But I think there are two important points within that. One is that, yes, it's true that we've outsourced our memory and that all that any memory you want to access, any fact you want to access is available instantly on Google. You don't need to memorize who the presidents are because you can figure out very quickly in one second who's the president, you know, who was the 16th president or the, well, that's easy, but who, who was the 18th president? That's easy. It's Abraham Lincoln. So everyone knows Abraham Lincoln is the 16th president. (laughs) Yeah. But Josh makes, I think, a very compelling case at the end of the book that, in fact, the people who are able to have the richest creative lives and to make the connections are people who have a lot of things lodged in their memories, that they're able- Do you really think he makes a compelling case? I do think he makes a compelling case. Where's the evidence? I opened to that page near near the end where he's asking, why bother investing in one's memory in an age of externalized memories? And the best answer he can give is that He says, to the extent that we control our lives, we do so by gradually altering those habits, which is to say the networks of our memory. And then this was the sentence I just, I couldn't take. He says, no lasting joke, invention, insight, or work of art was ever produced by an external memory. Maybe I'm feeling defensive because all of the work that I do is based on external memories of, you know, notes on my computer and my reporter's notebook. Where's the evidence that no lasting joke, invention, insider work of art was ever was ever produced. It's using... funny. I, I fixate on that same sentence because, as David can attest, I have a terrible, terrible memory, and I am so grateful to live in the age of externalized memories because nearly everything I do and write and talk to my children about is dependent on externalized memories, and ever more so. So, uh, you guys, I think, are in a different chapter than I am. I'm, I'm on page two hundred nine. And he talks about memory intelligence do seem to go hand in hand like a muscular frame in an athletic disposition. There's a feedback loop between the two. The more tightly any new piece of information can be embedded into the web of information we already know, the more likely it is to be remembered. People who have more associations to hang their memories on are more likely to remember new things, which in turn means they will know more and be able to learn more. The more we remember, the better we are at processing the world. And the better we are at processing the world, the more we can remember about it. And he also talks about the people who he admires who can do that. And I immediately thought of Christopher Hitchens, right? Like we we do instinctively admire people who have a vast body of literature that they have read and read and not forgotten and not forgotten and seem to be able to, you know, call up at exactly the moment that they need it. And yes, that's definitely obviously a part of intelligence, right? You don't want to be kind of starting anew every single time you sit down to write a story or make an argument. You want to have these things at your fingertips. So it is true that we do admire 
these kinds of literary characters who do that. But is there any connection between that and, and the memory palace techniques that are in play in, in the memory championships? That's hard. I mean, he no, says, I'm looking right. at the very end, and he said, that's what Ed, and Ed is his mentor, is a guy named Ed Cook, who's a guy from England who reappears throughout the book, a charming character who begins throughout the book to call Josh his son, you know, in that kind of mentory way. That's what Ed had been trying to impart to me from the beginning, that memory training is not just for the sake of performing a geeky party trick. It's about nurturing something profoundly and essentially human. So that's the part where you think, is it really? Or is there some kind of other freakish memory, Christopher Hitchensy thing, which is not aided by, you know, explicit memory techniques that is profoundly and essentially human? There were two points I was going to make. The first was this connection of memory and creativity or memory and being able to make connections. But the second, and I think to me, the most profound moment of the book, I don't know if this struck you in the same way, is actually is on page 75. It's again, it's Ed Cook talking. He, Ed Cook talks about his trying to expand his own subjective memory, that he is, is attempting to pack his own life with memories, because the more you pack your life with memories, the longer your life seems. Josh cites this character in Catch-22 who reasons that since time flies when you're having fun, the surest way to slow life's passage is to make it as boring as possible. And Ed says, no, in fact, the more we pack our lives with memories, the slower time seems to fly. The more that we can remember, the more that we can, the more experiences that we can have, vivid experiences that we can put into our memories that we have. And this is separate from the memory palace technique, but the more vivid experiences that we can have and, and, and put into our memories, the longer life is and the richer life seems. And actually, Josh himself, one of the things I love about Josh, who's a wonderful guy, is somebody who lives his life by just having experience after experience after experience. He's always traveling. He's always trying weird things. He's always doing things. And I think it's part of it, and it has to do with this notion that he is packing things into his memory so his life is will seem longer and richer. And it isn't the same as his memory techniques, but it is But maybe that's the distinction notion. we have to make is that, you know, how much is that aided by memory techniques, explicit memory techniques, or is there something else at play, like new experiences or practicing in a new way? I mean, this brings me to the universal principles, like maybe we have, these are the sort of, you know, more Malcolm Gladwelly parts of the book, and we all have our favorites and convince, I mean, he talks about what makes an expert. And one of the things that I really liked as the universal principle was this idea of the way that you practice, you know, that you when you first start to type, for example, this, he does this through typists, you know, you do it in a conscious way or a mindful way. And then you sort of learn it and you start to do it in an automatic way. And once you start doing it in an automatic way is when you actually get less good at it. So he was talking about how people who do mammograms, the more experienced they are, the more years they've been doing it, they're actually not better at it necessarily, unlike, say, surgeons who are doing sort of hand-on things all the time, because you move to a portion of your brain which is doing something automatically. And so it's the way that you practice. It's not merely the fact that you practice, which is really important. So you're supposed to practice for failure, essentially, that if you're an ice skater, you're supposed to practice things that you can't do, not things that you can do. Dan, I don't know about the neuroscience aspect of that, but uh, that struck me as intuitively interesting anyway. If I don't know if it's true, but it seemed very interesting. I kept flip-flopping as I was reading the book on, on whether I wanted to train my memory. Uh -huh. um, I'll, I'll just say right now that in the end, I, just, I decided not to. So I'm going to be as Wait, so you're like serious. Always. You were seriously considering it. There's some parts in the book where he invites the reader to you know, do you use some of the memory palace techniques as you're reading along. And I did, and I, and I thought it was interesting. And I, I considered the question of whether I would want to do this more and would it make my life better and would it be interesting. It reminded me of, of a time when I, I decided I wanted to learn to speed read because I thought that would help me professionally. 
And I looked up, there's actually a, a great slate series on speed reading. So I read that and I, I found some other stuff online about it and I started to practice to speed read and it's just a huge pain in the ass. It's really hard. You just have to, you know, while reading, push your eyes forward on the page again and again and again. You just have to work harder. You just really have to practice and work your ass off. And that was the the sense I got about this memory thing. At first, I thought, oh, this is great. I can use this memory palace and suddenly I'll remember everything and I'll have all these colorful images in my head. And when I sat down to do it, even just a little bit while reading the book, it just seemed really hard and annoying. And then, you know, the que- it goes back to that question of what do you get out of it? Is this actually enriching your life? Um, is it making you more mindful? I mean, that's sort of where Josh ends. You know, he says that it's it's made him more aware of, of his experiences. And I just, I don't believe it. As opposed to some other thing you could take from it, like go travel to new places or do different things or force yeah, yourself. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, the the one thing that sounded really appealing to me was this idea that by doing this, you become more imaginative. And Josh doesn't really get into this, but he spends so much time, you know, picturing these things and these crazy scenes in his head in such vivid detail. I wonder if he's, you know, a more imaginative and creative person independent of, you know, remembering anything just but because he's you, been practicing concocting these images. What The images are patterned. You know, Rhea Perlman is always the five of clubs or Don yeah, but think is about peopling your mother's house with image. I mean, think about peopling a place which has not been in your conscious memory for, you know, 25 years, like in any explicit way with all of these crazy dancing images. It's like turning your home into a theater. Basically, it's kind of an interesting idea. That's an interesting tension. Like it's it's very creative, imaginative act, but it's also it's reducing every every piece of information you come across to these stereotyped images. You know, that's also something uncreative about it. Right. So one of the things I really love about this book is he takes some time to create characters who are, you know, famous in, in the memory literature, and they're basically opposites to each other. So opposite, David, to what you mentioned, the Josh for, you know, creating lots of new experiences, this guy, Gordon Bell, who comes up briefly, who attempts to very explicitly externalize all of his memory. He's a very brief character, but I just want to mention him. So he writes down absolutely everything that he does and files it and sort of makes it into a searchable file that his his poor, poor secretary <laughs> has to keep. I mean, literally, it's like, I ate this. I did this. He's external. I peed at this hour. He's externalizing absolutely everything. And then for me, the two most interesting is the guy who's very forgetful and then also Daniel Tammet. Now, which one do you guys want to talk about? Are you interested in talking about the guy who forgets everything, essentially the guy with no memory? I, this, I think this stayed with me because we recently watched Groundhog Day and just something so poignant about the idea of someone going through life day after day after day, seeing the same people, remembering none of them. And, you know, like, what is a person without memory? And, and he didn't turn out to be a non-human being, this person, but he turned out to be sort of hardly recognizable as a human being. Uh, Dan, were you moved by that guy? His name, I think he goes by EP in the literature, right? Yeah. Uh, he didn't stick with you. Dan cannot remember. <laughs> Dan can't I, I remember a word he read. It, it, no, it was, it was more like Memento than Groundhog Day, right? Yes. Yes. Because um, he was, but and Memento was sort of more disturbing. This guy was like disturbing and a sweet old man. He seemed to have trained himself to say hello to all his neighbors. He, who he seemed to feel some kind of emotional kinship with, although he didn't remember that he spoke to them yesterday, but he kind of knew in some, like, as if he were a dog, that these were people who were friendly and he could speak to. David, not you either. No, I found it heartbreaking. And actually there was another person he cites and I, I can't remember who this one is. 
who had slightly more consciousness of his lack of memory than EP does. EP has so little consciousness of his lack of memory. He says his memory is pretty good. He says his memory is pretty good. It's he and he's not troubled by it. It's not he's not disturbed by what's happened to him. But there are other cases that uh, he cites one who every second essentially he's constantly becoming aware that something is wrong with him. And so he cites, and I, I can't. That's like Memento. That was truly. He horrible, cites, yeah. you know, I, I've just woken up. Now I've I've just finally truly woken up. I've truly and he exactly, crosses it out. And he keeps crossing it out. He knows that something is terribly wrong, and he's unsettled by it. And that is horror beyond horror. With EP, at least he's leading a kind of quiet, content life with his wife taking care of him and walking sedately around his neighborhood. But with this other person, is this every second is a is a horrifying recognition that the world has gone awry just to scare you even further this was caused by the flu it's like some terrible thing happened in his brain after he got the caused flu. by wasn't it herpes maybe it was herpes right the flu somehow i don't remember the connection Man. but it was some terrible flu the daniel tamet section okay I so that's was amazing obvious. right okay. i thought yes. that was my favorite chapter in the book yes that's an amazing chapter so david tell us who daniel tamet is it's not his real name as it turned out he's the author of the book born on a blue day which i read at the time but david describe who daniel tamet is daniel tamet is a young man who is a famed savant, famous for his incredible ability to memorize numbers, for his mastery of languages, for this quality called synesthesia that Tamit says he has, in which he sees numbers as shapes and colors, and he, this merger of senses that allows him to, to multiply large numbers in his head rapidly because he sees how these colors and numbers relate to each other. And he's also famous for having what's called Asperger's syndrome, little professor syndrome, uh, it's a mild form of autism, which causes uh, odd social behavior, but also is associated with, you know, with savantism of a sort. And wrote this best-selling, from what Hannah said, quite wonderful memoir board on a blue day about his autism. And there have since been a lot of memoirs, but that's the first one I remember. It was the first bestseller. It described a childhood of seeing numbers with a kind of vivid emotional and color quality. So colors essentially have mood. So, you know, nine is, you know, dark blue and sad or something like that. And then he would describe people in terms of colors. So he was on some late night talk show, like I can't remember which one, but he described, he could describe David Plotz as a 93, for example, because they have certain resonance with him. And before, 93, sweetie. <laughs> sorry, you're a 78. But before we get to what we find out about Daniel Tamman, I just want to just set this up by reading you what Josh writes about him. What fascinates us and excites us about savants, this is on page 219, although I'm reading from a um, sort of galley. Galley, yeah. The reason Daniel has received so much attention from both scientists and the public is their otherness and their ability to do the seemingly impossible with apparent ease. They are, in effect, aliens among us, walking exceptions to the natural order of the universe. As jaw-dropping as the memory tricks performed by mental athletes may be, they're still just tricks. And like any magic trick, once you know how it's done and that you could do it too, the effect loses a good bit of its luster. But savants are the real deal. For them, memory is not a trick, but a talent, something innate to them. So, Dan, can you tell us what we then ultimately learn about Daniel Tammet, whose name doesn't even seem to be Daniel Tammet in the end? Yeah, Josh watches this documentary about Tammet, and then he starts talking to some of his memory, his mental Man. athlete buddies. Yeah. And one of them says... Yeah, I, I think that guy used to compete. And that's Josh's first clue that, you know, maybe this guy who sort of set himself up as being something completely different from memory champions is not what he seems to be. And it turns out that, yes, before he changed his name, he was Daniel, Daniel Corny. Corny or something. Daniel Corny, right. Not a great name. Yes. Yeah. And he was kind of a middling mental athlete. 
who tried to even you know sell his services in terms of he could train you on the same techniques he used to memorize things, presumably the memory palace. And at some point, he gives that up and changes his name and reinvents himself as this Asperger's synesthete and becomes very famous and makes a lot of money writing memoirs. And this is a really interesting point, right? That there's something like two people can be doing the same thing, but in one case, we think of it as sort of special and innate and unique and particular, like this just kind of like flower in the desert. And in another case, it's just a trick that any old person can do. And it turns out that, you know, we haven't really thought about this throughout the book, but that distinction is really important in terms of our emotional reaction. He compares him briefly to Rain Man from the Dustin Hoffman Kim movie. Peek. Kim Peek is his name, who was still alive when he was writing this book, although he recently died. And, you know, what the point he makes is that Kim Peek really seems incredibly different, like eccentric, you know, really has no, hasn't regulated his social behaviors, has recall of insane things like what books were summarized in the 1983 Reader's Digest, you know, whereas Daniel Tammet seems, you know, recognizable right. as like you is, and me. And Kim Peek is unable to use the information. Kim Peek is able to take in and regurgitate the huge amounts of information, but he cannot process it, analyze it, manipulate it in the way that Daniel Tammet can. Josh's reporting on this is stunning. Josh ends up interviewing Tammet a couple of times and asks him each time to describe an, the same number. Yeah, like 91. 9,412. Right. And so you would think if 9,412, if he's really synesthetic and the numbers have these colors and meanings, it would be consistent. But in fact, the number comes, he describes it in vastly different ways each time he, Josh asks him about it. Josh notes that the tricks that Tammet does, the mental arithmetic is apparently laughably easy. That was a great moment because he's that, watching him on a video again once Josh has started his reporting and he sees him do something with his fingers. And apparently, you know, mental multiplication is like fairly common among these mental athletes, but they need a technique using their fingers. And when he watches the video again, he sees him using his fingers. Now, Dan, did you experience this as a gotcha? I didn't entirely like David's describing it as a total gotcha, which is not entirely my reaction to it. But what did you think? Did you think this was sort of a takedown of Daniel Tammet or not quite? I think it, it was written not as a gotcha, but it comes off as a gotcha. I mean, I certainly, I felt the joy of a gotcha, but I just wanted to point out about the way that he remembers the number 9,412, three different ways. There's a footnote there about the neurologist V.S. Ramachandran who tested Tamit at great length and found that he had extraordinary consistency in his reported synesthesias for numbers. So, Josh, in his reporting, found one thing, and, and the scientists who looked into it had apparently convinced themselves that he was consistent. So, And I think maybe that's part of why, at the end of the chapter, Josh is sort of unwilling to say outright, this guy is a fraud, I caught him, but is using it more to make this really interesting point about the way that you know our attitudes about the exact same feat you know, we find it more interesting when he's a freak and a natural talent, even though it, the implications are, are more interesting for the rest of us if we think of him as someone who just trained himself to do this stuff. I hold open the possibility that Daniel Tammet is a little bit of both. I mean, we now understand so much more about these spectrum diseases than we did before. Disorders. Disorders, sorry. And we, I knew the dis word was slightly off, but my memory couldn't recall it. Anyway, so we now understand more than we used to, and we understand that people can fall at different points along the spectrum. So, we, you know, it, it's possible to me that Daniel Tammet is not a severe Asperger's case, but he lies somewhere kind of on the low end of the spectrum, but also, you know, he comes 
comes from a poor Catholic family and needed a way to make some money, which is his explanation. And so he tried to sell himself as a mental athlete early in his life. And then he found success by emphasizing the more eccentric aspects of himself, which became, I think, more acceptable the more he moved away from his Catholic family and the more things like Asperger's and synesthesia became you know, the subject of every youth adult novel and very interesting to the rest of us. So I don't think that's an impossible and completely fraudulent biography. No, no. Wouldn't you rather live in a world where hard work pays off? I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, let you know, this is the question we're going to wind down on, which is like how ultimately interesting are the men? Like we're back to the four brothers now, which is how we started this. Do you guys think anybody could do this? I mean, is it true that it's, you know, this is a completely democratic thing and any old person could pick this up and just become, you know, win the U.S. memory championship? Dan, what do you think about that? It's easy to think about. Is this something about natural talent or acquired skill? And the lesson of this book is, except for the genuine freaks like Kim Peek, the Rain Man, this is an acquired skill. And yet, I think that there's a third possibility, which is that some people have a natural talent to practice their asses off. And Josh Four is one of those people. He, One of his mentors is, is Anders Ericsson, the Florida psychologist who studies acquired expertise and talks about how we need 10,000 hours of, of deliberate, mindful training. Ericsson had a paper that came out just a few months ago about this quality he calls grit, which is more of a, a natural inborn quality. And people who are gritty are able to put in the 10,000 hours. So, now we have, you know, a third category. Is it that someone is just amazing at memorizing things or they've just spent 10,000 hours learning or maybe they have a bad memory, but they're very good at practicing for 10,000 hours? Or maybe they have a great incentive too. I don't know how that goes into grit, but if you got a, you know, a really fat book contract and you were supposed to write this book at the end of which you were either going to do well or poorly on a U.S. memory championship and then everybody was going to read about it, that seems to me a really, really good incentive to, you know, get your grit and gear. Right. He was being paid to study this memory stuff. He had the access to great coaches. He had access to Erickson. Because had, one thing I don't know a, about these other guys is why they do it. I did not get a sense from any of the other mental athletes what it is that's driving them, except, you know, they live with their moms and have nothing else to do. But Dan, did you see this wonderful story? Hunt? I don't know if you saw it, sweetie, but there's this guy who was he had a sort of middling nothing kind of career. I forget what it was doing nothing very much. He's in his late 20s life was going nowhere. He had a history of doing things and not really succeeding at them. And he was a you know decent high school tennis player. He decided he was going to try 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to see if he could become a professional golfer. And so he's a year into this experiment where he's got these coaches. He's just working super duper hard at it. So these people caught him eight months into the experiment and wrote a story about it, which I read earlier this week. But I suspect to your grit point, this guy is not getting paid a lot of money you know, there's not a U.S. memory championship at the end. I suspect we're going to find in a year that he's given up this quest. Like he just unless, unless he gets a book deal. Yeah. I mean, it. now he's got somebody looking at him like I'm so glad someone's doing that experiment because I read the 10,000 hours over and over again. And I think it can't be true that any old person can just, you know, spend 10,000 democratic as I am generally can just spend 10,000 hours. And that's really all you need. It seems ridiculous. But that's I love awesome. this concept of grit it, because it's sort of the middle piece there. And it is obviously also true. The four brothers are Josh, the youngest of them. And Jonathan, the middle one, is this very famous successful novelist. And then Frank, the eldest, our former colleague, was the editor of the New Republic, also, you know, wrote best-selling book. And, and honestly, an amazing, maybe the fraternal amazing, competition, the fraternal competition enough. The, the kindly Emanuel brothers or something. 
But you're like the youngest brother of that trio, and you're like, man, I better get my act. I, I, I better put in this 10,000 hours because look what my brothers have achieved. So maybe that's incentive enough. But they're very good natured brothers. So maybe I don't, I think they're, they're highly supportive of each other because they're, they're lovely people. Lovely, smart, and gritty. Let's wind this down and say the last chapter he saves to go into the U.S. Memory Championship. I'm not going to tell you. These guys have convinced me. I, I usually am really mean about spoilers, but I'm not going to tell you what happens in the last chapter. But I am going to ask both of you, would you recommend this book? It's on the bestseller list, so lots of people are reading it. Would you recommend it and to whom? What kind of person do you think would like this book? Uh, would you give it as a gift? Sort of what, what do you think of the book? Dan, first. I thought the book was great and I would recommend it. And I would recommend it to my parents. I think one of the things that he doesn't mention in talking about the reasons why you might want to train your memory is any of this brain gym, brain training stuff that people do as they get older to try to stave off dementia and, and Alzheimer's. And I wonder if, you know, maybe people who are in their 70s, it would be helpful to start creating memory palaces. I also think they'd enjoy it. That's a great point. That's it is because point. Ed Cook, his mentor, and also Tony Buzan, who we haven't talked about, but who's the kind of, you know, self-help guru in this memory world. That's one of the big things they talk about. You know, we take it as a truism that we lose our memories as we get older, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can train your memory not to deteriorate. David. Oh, I would absolutely recommend this book. It's a delightful read. It's an easy read. You know, people will over compare it to the Gladwell books, and it's sort of these concepts that you can try to apply to your working life and your your business life and how valuable that can be. But but Josh is just a very clear writer, very good writer. And the the narrative, while the again the, the piddliness of the US memory championship is a slight problem. It, there's a lot of narrative tension, dramatic tension, plus it has all this utility function to it. So I think it has won its place on the bestseller list deservedly and I'm glad to see it there and hope it stays there for a long time. I completely agree and I also think he's charming as a narrator and I think completely honest. Sort of I'm, I'm always turned off by absolute principles and I think that's something that Josh doesn't go too hard on. He doesn't try and frame things and give them you know fancy names that you can remember for the next 10 years. He's fairly, to me, honest and reliable in how far he stretches these principles and the utility of these techniques and all those kinds of things. So I ultimately trust him and what he says these things are good and not good for. And he's very interesting. Okay, great. That's three thumbs up. I don't think we've had that for a while. Well, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Dan from New York. Thank you, David. Thank you to Abdullah Rufus for engineering this podcast. And remember, join us next month with Killer Angels by Michael Shara. See you next time.